Thank you for pressing play on episode 125 of A-Sides. I'm Andy. For this episode, I invited my friend Denny Smith back onto the podcast. This will be his sixth overall appearance on A-Sides. And the idea for this episode started last summer when I drove over to Terre Haute, Indiana to see Denny play with the Great Affairs. They opened up for Warrant and also Skid Row. And I'd never really been too familiar with a lot of Warren's deeper cuts besides some of the hits like Cherry Pie and Uncle Tom's Cabin. So of course, I went straight to the source. I asked my musical sensei, Denny, about all sorts of stuff involving Warren's classic years. We looked at the first four albums, their hits, deep cuts, some stories from opening for Warren, and just a lot of nuggets of Warrant knowledge from the mind of Denny Smith. So hopefully you enjoy this episode, and I'm about to head down and see the guys open up again for Buck Cherry. So maybe this trip down will inspire the next episode with Denny Smith. Hopefully you enjoy episode 125 of A-Sides as we dive into the first four classic albums for more. Look, it's rock and roll! And cue music. Welcome back to A-Side, Denny. I think this is like the fifth time when you're talking with me. Has it really been that many times? Yeah, five with me, now counting this one, and then six overall because you did the end of the year one with Brent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we did the countdown thing. I forgot about so, that. That was fun. We're going to do that again sometime. And this is a first because it's the first time that we've done this where we've been on Zoom, like face-to-face. Usually it's true. It's over the true. phone. I forgot how handsome you were. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> What's with all those dresses in your room? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Not mine, not mine. I'm basically recording in a closet right now in my new apartment. I'm not. I'm not here to judge, man. Yeah, it's been a rough, been a rough month for that already. So, <laughs> shit. To start, we're talking about Warrant and their first four, I guess, classic albums. And I think this kind of started because last summer, your band, The Great Affairs, you guys opened up for Warrant, and I had never really dove too far into them. So. I've played with them several times over the years. That was a especially cool show just because it was one of those big amphitheater. I, I, I love those gigs, man. We don't get yeah. enough of those. But, and it's also cool because I've been a fan all the way back to the first record, you know, in real time. So anytime we've gotten the opportunity to play with them in any band, I'm always up for it. How many times have you opened up for them? Like with all the bands you've been in, like Bombshell? Uh, and- I know in Best of Seven, we played with them a couple times. And they play, they actually toured with them on the Ultraphobic Tour when they were needle damage done, they went out and did a short uh, West Coast run with them. Oh, really? Uh, uh, Shane? Yeah, when they were just a three-piece. That was before, uh, a couple of years before I joined the band, probably. And they actually did, they recorded with Jerry Dixon. The first needle damage done demos are done at Jerry Dixon's recording studio, which I think is where they did Belly to Belly and possibly some of Ultraphobic, I'm not sure. But he recorded, oh, cool. he produced their first demos. As far as... Shows that I played, I know we played with the Janie lineup at least twice. And I don't know if we played with the Robert Mason lineup 
but maybe just one time, maybe more than that. I, I kind of lost track of some of that, but at least at least once or twice with the current lineup. So oh, awesome. yeah, they're always they're always entertaining, man. They're you know Janie was a master class in the front man thing, man. He was so cool, but he was also you know he was a particular character, so kind of had to prepare yourself for those gigs. You didn't know what you're going to get kind of thing. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, when we played with them, they were, um, they were promoting a record called latest and greatest. And we played with them twice, maybe a year apart at the same venue each time in, in, uh, Sage, Illinois. And the first, or I can't remember which time it was, they had a slightly different lineup. I remember the keyboard player at one gig was the drummer, the next gig or vice versa. They had Kerry Kelly on lead guitar at one show, but they had Rick Steyer from Kingdom Come at the other show. So it was there was some there was some rotation going on, but they did a, a meet and greet. They had sold like a package, like a VIP package, and mm-hmm. we were it, that you know that club. Have you been to Pops? Uh yeah, I went Pops there uh, once. It's kind of like I don't remember the inside of the venue, but I remember the outside is really weird. There's like a power plant in the strip club, and yeah, like it's, it's a 24-hour town, man. Really it's weird, kind of sketchy down yeah. there. But at the time, there were at least in that parking lot was pops, and at least two, possibly three strip clubs in the other corners. Yeah. So it was it was kind of the hub uh, on the other side of the river from St. Louis. And we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into the first time we played there, but the second time, I believe, was when this happened. They had a they had this VIP thing set up, and we were direct support on that show. So we were sound checking. They had already done theirs. We were sound checking, you know, doing the thing in reverse order. And yeah. there was a commotion, and it was because all these people had lined up to get autographs, and they couldn't find Janie. There were, he was nowhere to be found. And, you know, that's he's the star of the show, man. So it was it got tense and I can't remember how they resolved it, how they tracked him down or how they got him back to the building, but they did. And they did the, the meet and greet thing, but there was a lot of yelling and a lot of frustrated conversation going on between club owners and their road manager. And we're just trying to get through. And that's the same night that that Brian had his onstage wipeout thing happened. So the whole night was kind of riddled with weird stuff, but when it came time to go on, man, it was, sold out and we played to a packed house and they absolutely killed it that night, man. They were on fire. So awesome. You know, it, once you get, you got them up there, it was good to go, but it was the, I guess maybe the time in between was the, was the trick, you know, just the rock star life kind of thing. Yeah, man. You wouldn't think in the middle of, I mean, Sage, Illinois, most people don't even know where that's at, but I mean, (laughs) close enough to St. Louis. I don't know if he had family there. He knew somebody there and he, and he split out for a minute. Um, and if I, if I remember right, we had played with Enough's Enough the night before, and we'd blown an amp. So it was already kind of a scramble. We were, like, trying to get, trying to figure out why this amp wouldn't work. Like, we had ended up just being, like, a fuse or something that we bought yeah. at a gas station and got it fixed. But So the whole thing was just, it was, there was a lot of, and they, they took us, the first time we played with them, they gave us, they shared their dressing room with us. And the second time, they had a different road manager, and he put us in this, like, shed outside with like a case of Budweiser. That was our whole, that was like our rider was, it's like that, that's it. And it might be because I tried to eat Jamie's chips ahoy. Yeah. That's what you said in a text. You're like, uh, what was it? Unwarranted when I ate uh, Jamie Lance cookies. 
Well, I didn't realize that the uh, craft services table was off only for them. Yeah, man, it was just theirs. So I was, you know, digging into these cookies, and apparently those were specifically for Warren or for Janie in particular. And, uh, <laughs> I didn't get my hands slapped, but it was, you know, at least figuratively slapped. Oh. And, uh, so maybe that's why they put us in the, the shed with one light bulb the next time. <laughs> you just reminded me of something they're talking about the tense uh, situations backstage. I remember something working for a radio station. They had a show. It was Blues Traveler was the headliner and Gin Blossoms and I think Russet Root, kind of like a 90s thing that they were yeah. doing. And it was out at Three Sisters Park. Yeah, Chillicothe. So, you know, yeah, you know, being from Central Illinois, you know the distance between Chillicothe and Peoria. Yeah. And they put all the bands up in Peoria. And so, and they had like a runner for each band, right? I was assigned to Blues Traveler, but everybody but John Popper. So, um, anyways, I think there was, yeah, there was like four runners that day and we all had these big vans and stuff. So anyways, everybody's going back and forth between Peoria and Chillicothe and they got their assigned bands. Well, before Blues Traveler was on stage, I had already brought in the guys, um, the rest of the guys there, but they yeah. could not find John Popper. They could not locate him. <laughs> and I guess it turned, there was a huge tense situation too, like that, like, oh my God, Where's John Popper? They could not get a hold of him through his cell phone or anything. And I think he's had heart problems prior to that because he's like, oh my God. Or he was a bigger guy. So they're like, oh my yeah, God, everybody's yeah. scared. And Bayhan's like freaking out. The tour manager's freaking out. Well, it turns out what had happened was for them, they rented like a suite, you know, and you know how some of those hotel rooms have like a connecting door. They're separate rooms, but they got a yeah. door that connects. He went into the other room and took a nap. And so they're like even sending people to the hotel and pounding on the opposite door, but he ended up being in the other door or in the other room. It was like, it was almost like, it was almost literal chaos. Well, there's a, there's a famous Nashville story involving Van Halen and Black Sabbath where a very similar situation happened here when Sabbath was touring with Van Halen in support, I think on the first Van Halen record. Oh, damn. Ozzy. Passed out and possibly, if I remember this right, passed out in the wrong hotel room. And Van Halen headlined that night. Sabbath didn't even play, I don't think. Oh, shit. They could not find Ozzy. So it almost could have been the same thing here. Yeah. Like, yeah. it was literally like the band was on stage. John Popper showed up and then got out of this band and got right on stage. That's like the only real difference is John Popper would have eaten like eight or nine bats probably instead of just the <laughs> one hit. <laughs> all right well now that anyway i don't know how we got on that yeah subject. well now that i'm warmed up we're warmed up and we're ready to go yeah got let's talk about warrant let's the first warrant. first four warrant albums what from 89 to 95 and well here's one thing that i like though is how you already said that you like were into the first album in like real time and when that came out yeah, in 89 i was like only five years old so i guess i like yeah, talking to you and rub, Kenny. rub that rub that in there yeah. man just that why don't we mention that one more time just talk about the <laughs> yeah I, honestly man that yeah. first record was not it wasn't like a seismic experience for yeah. me man I, that, I didn't really come around to them fully until cherry pie and when you initially when we talked about this i thought we were going to do the first two records yeah so i had i was like okay i'm gonna have to really do some homework on that first one because i don't remember a lot about it and then when you said we're gonna do the first four i was like man that's awesome because the last two of that sequence are my favorites man i i love from that 
first era of the band. Uh, although I don't know, Ultraphobic kind of feels like it's they'd moved into a different thing by then. But yeah, yeah. those those two records back to back, Dog Eat Dog and Ultraphobic, to me were pinnacle for them. You know, yeah. um, and they were like a whole different. They had evolved so much from Cherry Pie to those two albums that uh, that first record is almost unrecognizable as the same band by yeah. comparison you know it is it is well like i just feel like yeah it's of its era yeah very much so we covered some of those songs in my first cover band we would we did probably about three or four of those songs badly of course but we did mm-hmm. them and i remember at the time you know we didn't know that it that they didn't really play guitar on those albums that came out later on yeah. you know so but i remember learning those solos and thinking shit man this is a workout some of this stuff is really a workout and i again i i'm sure i slaughtered that stuff anyway but they to me were like a pop judas priest or something you know what i mean they were they were the twin guitar thing they weren't poison poison was more like a stripped down you know poppy new york dolls kind of vibe yeah thing. Whereas these guys were, you know, at least on the surface, were a little more complex. And his lyrics were always great. You know, there's some there's some pap on that first record where it's just like, you know, throwaway tongue-in-cheek stuff. But that, again, like you said, that was of the time. But the thing that was, to me, that separated them was the same thing that separated Winger. It was Bo Hill, man, the production. That first one you could tell was done on a very tight budget by comparison, but that it's just slick, man. They were slicker than a lot of those bands, you know? And his lyrics and his performance, to me, was so head and shoulders above. At the point, At that point in time, was considered the A and B league of the hair metal bands. I thought I felt they were at the top of the class for the most part, you know. Okay, cool. See, that's what I meant. Like, not trying to pick on your age, but I just mean that I'm younger, so like, I guess I came of age later. So it's cool to hear stories from you or Kenny or like Rizzo because you put stuff into perspective. Whereas I'm like, you know, I didn't. Well, really... Kenny was there when they invented guitar strings, man. So I mean, <laughs> he can take you way back. Yeah, uh, but well, that's even something that I was thinking of. We're saying of its era was like. I was almost thinking of them when I was growing up. I thought of them on like the lower tier of the hair bands because I thought the like hierarchy was like, you know, you got Bon Jovi and like Def Leppard. Then under that, you got like Motley Crue and your Poisons. Then you got your Warren and your Firehouses and your Winger. And then yeah, you got your mean, other tier. So I can, I can see that, but I never considered Def Leppard to really be a hair band. And Bon yeah. Jovi was only a hair band for the first couple of records man that those guys were so big that they surpassed oh yeah me and guns and roses were other than the you know welcome to the jungle video there's no hair band those guys were just aerosmith man on roids it was like those they were so they were so greasy and not that thing um warrant were definitely a hair band i mean they had the cheesy choreography and stuff and they weren't necessarily the greatest players or anything but their arrangements were more like the way the songs. if you really break those songs yeah. down and really listen to them man they're 
that's some clever stuff, especially from Cherry Pie and on. Right, there's some really clever stuff going on in those songs. They've got weird little codas at the end of the songs that most bands didn't do, you know. Everybody else just knocking out three and a half, four minute crappy songs about tits and ass. And, and they and they had plenty of those tits and ass songs, but they didn't, it wasn't all that, you know. And the further along they got, the less about that it became on the surface, you know, just on the surface, there's a little bit of that, you know? Yeah, because that was something, too, that um, I kind of, I guess I let slip in a text message, like off air texting you back and forth was, it sounds to me like, like now that I'm actually diving into Warrant, it sounds like that Cherry Pie song doesn't fit with the rest of the record. It sounds like, to me, I thought, well, the label maybe wanted a hit and it was shoehorned in there. And you said, yeah, that's oh, basically what? that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's 100%. That was the scenario, man. They asked them to, you know, crap out a, you know, their dude looks like a lady or whatever it was that they expect they wanted to, you know, I, I don't know. That first record, I think I wrote it down somewhere how many copies it sold. I've got it in my notes somewhere. But, you know, that was, they had two, three, you know, really big radio singles on that. I mean, Down Boys was big. Heaven, obviously, that went to like number two. That Sometimes She Cries, a single. Big Talk is a single. It didn't really do anything, although I really love that song. But so they got a lot of mileage out of that record. They toured the shit out of it. You know, they were really present. You know, I said, man, yeah. I was laughing because I remembered seeing them on this roll. I was like, I know I saw them playing on a roller derby show. Like a Saturday afternoon, like ABC or NBC roller derby. And I looked it up. That was a real thing. They were on this roller derby show. What our next group loves about rock and roll is there are no rules. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Warrant. I don't need to be the king of the world. As long as I'm the hero of this They were lip syncing, obviously. They were, you know, it was all to tape. But they were everywhere, man. I mean, they really, they really worked that record hard. I don't even know when they had time to make Cherry Pie. Like how they got Cherry Pie out so quickly at the level of quality it was at. Because most fans, dude, their follow-ups sucked ass, man. I mean, no offense to Firehouse, but... You know, they had that first record was big and they barely eked out. If they hadn't had that power ballad on that second record, they were cooked. You know what I mean? Because yeah. the it was just like they made a carbon copy of their first album with and just changed the title of the power ballad and called it something different. And maybe I think maybe he played keyboards on it instead of guitar. But man, Warren made a whole, like evolved in the just between those two records into a whole different, even glossier, tighter band. And so, like, man, most bands at that stage together just holding on just crapping albums out trying to get it happening before this thing went away yeah know? really because yeah because i wrote that down and it said that uh the second one cherry pie was out in like a year and a half after uh, yeah. that first one so yeah that yeah is it's, crazy. Not, dude, it's not like it's loaded with outside writers that you yeah. know that was 90 percent just janie you know they again they use some outside players and stuff 
you know, for guitar solos and things, I think, and some keys and stuff. But I mean, that album, I mean, I don't know how many, of the, some of those songs may have existed before. And maybe that's why, you know, it's like, uh, there's plenty of bands where it's like, well, you know, we've got, that's from, they released a song that was 10 years old that they've been sitting on kind of thing. That happens all the time. Yeah. But I'm just saying, man, for it to be a year and a half gap where you know they toured pretty much solid that whole time, that's impressive, man. I mean, especially anymore now, bands will put albums out. Have you ever, four years? I mean, what's the last Metallica album till now? How many out? How many years was it between albums? 2016? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, not that's apples and oranges, obviously. Yeah. But I'm just saying, bands don't do that. You know, Def Leppard would take three, four years between oh right. shit yeah so so you said they were like everywhere uh back then but did you did you come across them first on the radio or like mtv or you said that roller derby no i remember thing? i remember down boys being on the radio and really digging that and then they had like a i feel like they at some point released like a home video like a vhs where they're playing like in a water park or something like a live mm-hmm. thing because i think the big talk video is maybe taken from that and they had the fat guy on the cover in the video, like they had like a you know, kind of like they did with David Lee Roth in the Crazy from the Heat videos and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, thing. And there were so there were these little vignettes that were in there that were about that. And I don't know how much of that was was from you know, where I recognized because I didn't own the record, man. I didn't own it. Somebody made me like a cassette copy of it. Cherry Pie was the first one I ever actually bought, I think. Oh, damn. So when I went back and listened to this, and the, what drives that home for me is the fact that. I don't remember half the songs. When I went back and listened to it, I some of those songs I did not remember at all. I remembered the singles and maybe one or two other th- things that were on it, but every album after that, I could probably sing every word to you, but I did not like I did what are some of the songs like Riding High and Cold Sweat? I don't I don't remember those, man. I mean once I heard them, I was like, Yeah, I've heard that before probably, but Or In the Sticks. In the Sticks. Man, I don't even like that thirty two pennies song. I could Go the yeah. rest of my life and never hear that again. Be just fine, but I can't say that about anything after that. It's just maybe yeah. a song here or there that's kind of. Eh. So you want to move on to Cherry album. Pie now? Yeah, that's that. Yeah, yeah I, I, that one. I know. I remember where I bought it. I bought it at Best Buy in uh, Bloomington, and I was mad later on when I realized that I didn't have the copy that had "Ode to Tipper Gore" on it. Oh damn! Somebody played that. I was like, "What's that, man?" And I went home and checked my tape, and it wasn't on there. And I was so pissed i didn't realize there was an edited version so the version i have on cassette to this day does not have that on it my cd oh, copy does, but my cassette does not have it it looks like dirty rotten filthy stinking rich was out in january of 89 and then cherry pie the second album from war was out in september of 1990 so it was a little over a year and a half or so. yeah Damn. and that's that's impressive, man. I mean, I don't know how much time they spent in the studio, what it took to, to turn that around, but to do that, to come up with the songs, I mean, maybe Janie's one of those guys that could write on the road. You know, a lot of guys can't do that, yeah. but it's it's not like they went in and they made a carbon copy of the first record. They didn't. They stepped their game up significantly. That album is loaded with production stuff that the first one, you know, the first one has little touches of it here and there. That second album is slick man like Bo Hill did all the Bo Hillisms on that thing and it's crazy when you listen to that I listened to it in headphones and I had not done that in years probably the last time I listened to the headphones I had a Sony Walkman oh shit so <laughs> I listened to it in proper headphones and I was blown away 
by some of the cool stuff that's on that album. You know, Cherry Pie was huge. Uncle Tom's Cabin was huge. I saw Red should have been way bigger than it was. And they squeezed four singles out of that, too. You know, I think my favorite one on this one is Mr. Rainmaker. Love that song, man. That song, yeah, is just so badass. I don't know. It's just the hook. Well, this is funny because I, for years, I thought, well, maybe it's just the, you know, the sound of it. But man, Jerry Dixon, I feel like he's the MVP, man. There's some cool bass stuff on all these albums, but he really shines on that Cherry Pie record. He's got a cool bass tone. He's playing, they're all playing great on it. You know, I mean, whoever's playing on it. The, I, know it's, I know it's the rhythm section at least. And those guys played, I'm sure they played something, they had to play at least rhythm guitar stuff, you know, because they're competent players, really good players actually. You know, and that, I noticed one weird thing when I was looking at the credits, this never occurred to me until the other day when I was going back and doing this homework, is that that sure feels good to me did you look at the co-write on it? No. Okay, so it's written with the two guys from Kingdom Come that did not end up in Warrant. It's oh. the other two guys, because James Kotak and Rick Steyer ended up in Warrant, but it's Danny Stagg and the, what's the other guy, Johnny B. Frank are the co-writers on that song. Oh, oh interesting. Which, honestly, that's just weird that there's co-writes, because there's not a lot of Janie co-writes going on. But those, yeah, so those two guys, so... I just thought that was an unusual choice of co-writers when you don't generally do it, and then you end up playing with the other two guys in the band. Huh. Line, you know? Yeah. Here's something that I thought of, and I wrote this down, because you know how we're talking about the first album to the second album, like Cherry Pie, they kind of were kind of going beyond, like, you know, the genre? Yeah. yeah. I kind of feel like, or I kind of likened it in a way as I'm listening to it. I'm like, this is kind of like Stone Temple Pilots, too, where... I think their first album was kind of tailored to that grunge style. Oh, yeah. After that, that. they kind of like went off and were like, I don't know, going off doing their own thing. And it's no, man, I told you, I've talked, I had this conversation with several people. It's like once they got through the door and they realized, you know, because they kind of did a little bit with purple, they already started getting weird with purple. Yeah. But man, beyond that, they did whatever they wanted, man. It was, and even on on purple, man, they were already kind of off in the weeds a little bit on that on some tracks, but. It's a little different with the Warrant thing. I only say that because at that stage of the game, or at that point in time, really, you know, the genre that they were kind of slotted into was so rigid and, you know what I mean? You kind of, it started to sound like an assembly line kind of thing where they were just like churning these out. Like they just, you know, like one of those little Play-Doh things where you crank them and then the shit just comes out. It was just like that, man, except it was, you know, you could put all the colors in there, but the same shit came out every time. It's like they it didn't matter who was in the bands. They, especially when they started all using the same producers and stuff. It's yeah, because it's always like a formula too. And even I noticed th- like this over the years, but there's always like a big first rock song for the first single. Then the second yeah. single is always a ballad, and then it's just back and forth, back and forth. So it's cookie cutter, like you're saying. Yeah, and like Warrant were they were one of those bands that. They didn't just have one good ballad, ballad per record. They could have two or three on there. Yeah. And the, it, I always felt bad for the second ballad because it never got the shine. You know what I mean? It yeah, was, yeah. It's like, oh, they already had the one big one, man. You'll never catch up with that. But, but yeah, I mean, they they didn't go 
too out on a limb, I didn't feel on this record. They just grew up. Man, most of it is, is in the production and the arrangement stuff. And, and I don't know without having her, I mean, I don't know if there are demos that exist for this record, but without hearing the demos for it, I don't know how much of that is Bo Hill's hand in there or if they arranged all that stuff on their own, you know, worked it up off the floor. But however it got done, those are cool arrangements, man. I mean, and I had this weird idea when I was, I was listening to this stuff when it came out. I never thought of Janie as really that great of a singer because he didn't really scream or do any of that. Kind of, you know what I mean? He yeah. always, but if you go back, if you try and sing that stuff, man, it's hard. He was a way better singer than I gave him credit for at the time. He had such a cool character to his voice that it's instantly recognizable. Man, and I'm not trying to disparage any bands from that era because I, I love a lot of that stuff, man. And, and it's not a competition, obviously, but I just felt like they, pound for pound, man, their songs were smarter, you know? Yeah. Top to bottom were just smarter. You know, even if they had dumb shit like badges that said the Wad Squad on them and stuff like that, I mean, they did still have that campy, cheesy, like I said, the tits and ass thing that was, they couldn't get away from that a little bit, but they were just good, man. I mean, Janie was... You know, obviously the brain's the operation, but can't take it away from the band, man. They were they were better than most of those bands. I'll stand by that, you know. It's just it's just a fact. Yeah. I guess we can move on to the one that you said that you really like, and it seems like one that gets a lot of love and even a vinyl reissue, I guess, but Dog Eat Dog, the third album. I have mixed feelings on this one just because Oh, really? Yeah, because I feel like I mean I thought it was a bold move for them to make and try to do this heavy thing. And plus, the, you know, it was starting, the grunge thing was starting to happen. And they were probably up against it either way, no matter what they did there. But, and I love, Michael Wagner is one of my favorite producers, but I miss the Bo Hill stuff on it. Even though Michael Wagner puts all kinds of cool tricks and stuff in there, and there's a lot of great production stuff. There's a thing about Bo Hill's mixes, on the, especially on Cherry Pie. It's this space thing. When you listen to them in headphones, man, there's stuff moving everywhere, you know? Oh, it's like watching the inside of a clock, you know? You're just like, wow, holy shit, man, all these things. It takes all these things to make this, do this, perform this one task. But hmm. it's that on an audio level, man. And you listen to the winger records have it to a certain degree, too. Uh, not so much rap, because rap is more up the middle kind of band. But um, those Warrant records are... You, like I said, you just got to listen to them in headphones, man. There's so much stuff swimming in the mix, but none of it is out of place. There's weird little like Led Zeppelin acoustic guitars in a couple songs, and and they only come in for a second and then they disappear. Huh. But it always sounds like there's something even underneath all the instruments you can identify. I don't know if it's synthesizer stuff or something, but there's always something moving and swirling in there. delays and the tails of you know the tail end of some kind of vocal delays or, or guitar parts or something but it's so cool and if you listen to doggy dog back to back with that lots of reverb because michael wagner loves his reverb but it's not the same there's a lot more open space in it okay and so which is cool for some stuff but and this is just my barely educated opinion it was lacking something. From hey, well, that. you make albums, so don't so don't like discredit yeah, yourself. Yeah, but we don't make we don't make you know Bo Hill super shellacked 
I just love that guy's production, man. And I know a lot of people think it's too gimmicky or whatever, but I don't think it suck it, man. It's it's uh his approach to those things. I mean, he took a band that was just, you know, five dudes, man, two guitar, bass, and drums. And they always had a keyboard dude on tour, but you know, and it just sounds it's rich, man. Like those hmm. things are you know, even in retrospect, man, a lot of albums from that era don't hold up, man. I, I listen to it and I go, oh, shit, man, this is it's embarrassingly flimsy. But that album is not flimsy, man, you know? I guess that's what we lose in, like, the digital age, streaming everything because it's so compressed, like MP3 on your yeah. phone, right? But you were listening to what? Were you listening to vinyl and had headphones no, on? No, actually, I CD? did listen to the, I had the CD, but I listened to, no, I listened to the remastered, the deluxe edition of Cherry Pie. And then I listened to Doggy Dog. It was just a regular standard. I've got the CDs sitting here, but I didn't pop the CDs in. I just listened to the, so I could walk around and do my notes. I had to get my cardio while I was taking oh, yeah. 12 <laughs> long, you know. Couldn't be sitting yeah. down that long. I had thought I about something, though. for four hours, Andy. Yeah. I cannot sit still for four hours. I had thought something in terms of production, like, but maybe I'm wrong, or I don't have like a trained ear or whatever, but I was thinking this that like i was listening to dog eat dog i was like it's almost like it's almost for me what bob ezrin did with kiss and alice cooper for dog eat dog is because there's you know kid voices and the big like chorus like on bitter pill the weird chorus That stuff, that's what I'm saying. It, he did, I'm not taking anything away from Michael Wagner. I yeah. love Michael Wagner production. I love Big Reverb, and he loves Big Reverb. And that yeah. album sounds huge. It sounds like it was done in like a, a hockey arena or something. Yes. It, yeah. It's big, and, and he does do a lot of cool, there's a lot of cool reverse snare drums and stuff kind of sizzling from left to right. There's that stuff, but it's just not, it's like, dude, it's like Bow Hill has a Bow Hill button. <laughs> and when he finishes the song, and even after he's already placed everything in the mix, he goes over there and he goes, okay, now, the final touch. And he pushes the Bow Hill button, and the Bow Hillisms, are, it, just, it just takes it all and pulls it in. It's like a mastering program or something. Yeah. It just has the thing. Oh, there was something like that, and um, I forgot how to do it, but I, when I was learning Photoshop years ago, there was something that was an action. And you could make a folder and set it with all these specifications, and throw your photos into that folder with all the action settings, and it would come out the way you wanted, like a template. So yeah, that would almost be like... All of those things. Yeah, so like I feel like Bo has got like a program somewhere, which I know he probably doesn't. But in my head, there's like a... The last finishing touch is always the go hit hit the Bo Hill button, you know, and it it gets... (laughs) It just applies this big code of extra audio shellac that makes it, you know, it firms up yeah. The Bo Hillisms, and it's perfect. The Michael Wagner stuff has got more. It's a that's a rock record, dude. I mean, it's such a huge rock record. And if I have any qualms with it at all, besides a couple songs that I just do not like, it would just be that I can hear the struggle. To me, this is just to me, and I'm cr- super critical about this stuff, but I can hear Janie trying to make some of the lyrics smart on some of these songs, and that it just doesn't quite get there like it's like it's they're great lyrics but they're he's trying you can hear him trying to be serious and i didn't feel that like a mr rainmaker you know there's just some songs where you're just like ah this is a struggle feel the battle going on you know dog eat dog yeah there's a couple things where 
chorus is like almost like too sugary for the riff that's happening and the it just doesn't it doesn't quite just to my ear does not quite coalesce yeah the way i i think he was hoping it would be so i can you know you can feel that weird little thing you know there's it, like i wrote down you can there's the juxtaposition of the their newfound metalness and Janie's pop tendencies and they oh, don't okay. it doesn't always align you know sometimes it's just kind of like man it gets super close but I don't know, and there and there are certain songs like. Um, I'm actually, to wait, let me let me stop you because. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, this this was actually something that I was gonna ask you. Was Janie Lane an influence on you as like a songwriter? Because to me, listening to this stuff, obviously, it's like, like years removed, and you were in it at the moment. But he actually seems, in retrospect, to me, like the most honest or maybe vulnerable, like lyrical writer of his peers. I was and remained a huge fan. I always thought he should have gotten more of a shake beyond the hair era and just couldn't, you know, never quite got out of being lumped in with that, which, yeah. you know, most of those guys, you know, even the guys that are still doing it struggle with that because it just eventually, you know, when the resurgence of that stuff happened, that was the easy paycheck. You just go mm-hmm. back to that. You try and do that thing. But yeah, I mean, I saw to me, he was another like Donnie V kind of guy whose palette was really a lot broader and he had a lot more available to him than the average dude doing trafficking and that kind of stuff, you know, but he knew where his bread was buttered. So he yeah. tried to, you know, he towed the line pretty well, I thought. And dog eat dog for, you know, I don't know if at the time, I don't remember it because I bought it and loved it. I didn't realize how unsuccessful it was by comparison. I didn't know until after they split up in the middle of that tour, that it wasn't great, you know? Because I, I, I love that record. All my friends, my bandmates, we all love that record. And I didn't have, you know, any inkling that it was a problem because, you know, we were all, we'd read our Metal Edge and our Hit Parader magazine and everything looked cool. They were in, over in Europe and playing, you know, festivals and stuff. And other than Jerry Dixon wearing those ridiculous leather shorts, uh, <laughs> I thought they looked cool and... You know, it was it was like the it was like a rebirth of the band. They were kind of, and I thought maybe this will get them over this grunge thing. If this grunge thing, because I didn't know that shit was going to stick around. I read something. Uh, it was on Wikipedia, so it might not be true or it might not be true. But it said something like, at this era or state in the band, he like went into the Columbia offices and where there used to be some huge <laughs> picture of Warrant, there's now a big picture of Alice and Chain. So he kind of knew yeah. the writing was on the wall. Yeah, I remember that maybe on a behind the music or something, he talked about that and nobody gets to ride the wave forever, man. Yeah. So it's like they had, and they had a really good run, solid three, four years where they, you know, they, the thing that sucked about them is that if you look at the tail end of the cherry pie era, they were headlining small arenas. They did that blood, sweat and beers tour with firehouse and trickster. And oh, it wasn't man. a super long tour, but um, they did a pay-per-view from it and everything. Oh, damn and it, and then they came back, and they I think they might have tried to play arenas on Dog Eat Dog, and it got scaled down, and it just wasn't it wasn't doing business, yeah. man. I mean, just like that stuff. If you didn't live it, like I was only partially aware of how severe it was, but I remember going to what year did uh, Dog Eat Dog come out? Ninety two, August of ninety two. Ninety five. Okay, so ninety five. 
So it would have been 94, 95. I went to this foundation's forum convention in Burbank, California. I hadn't been to California since I was a baby. So it was a big deal to get to go back and stuff. And it was cool to go to this heavy metal retail convention. It was like, it was a trip. And I ran, I saw Shane Tassert there. And, but this is at the age, this is at the time when that stuff was, was really in the shitter. Like, and it was the convention, especially they, they, they spent the vast majority of this convention trying to brainstorm on various panels. How do we resurrect metal? How do we resurrect hair metal and stuff? And there were all these people on, you know, all the warrant guys were there. But I had lunch because a buddy of mine worked for them for a while. I had lunch with Jerry Dixon, Eric Turner. And I just sat there quietly and didn't, because I didn't want to fanboy and dork out and stuff. But their old manager walked by while we were sitting there. And I remember Jerry Dixon grinding his steak knife into the table, like, when that guy walked by. And it's like, because they were involved in, like, lawsuits and it really went bad for them and i'm sure a lot of bands had very similar stories but you know when you're sitting there with the guy that to you is just you know plaster all over mtv two years ago and yeah. they're on top of the world and it was clearly not that was not their situation at the time that was a pretty rapid decline man that was a borderline crash landing you know the fact that they even pulled it out and got back together and did a record as good as ultraphobic is a miracle but to have done i mean i can just imagine if i had made dog eat dog if i had written bitter pill and it just got crapped on by mtv i wouldn't be in a good mood either man i mean yeah. that's a great song that should have been a huge single that is that's almost like kind of like queen that song literally did not chart at all like did nothing i mean n really nothing did i think that i wrote down machine gun went to like number 38 on the active rock chart or whatever they call it speaking of that i would think that like i guess this is in retrospect but i was thinking this like april 2031 that could have been a cool single and then you have like this cool mad max looking video where you put a filter over it where everything's like you know grayed out or oranged yeah, man, but we all or saw something. the Kiss Look It Up video, and that post-apocalyptic thing doesn't always come off well on a shoes. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, do they? That's the thing. But you got to realize, and I at the time I did get this a little bit. They went from um, singing about love and stereo to April twenty thirty one, and it was kind of like I imagine some Judas Priest fans viewed Turbo Lover and Parental Guidance and stuff. It's like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Yeah. Like. I don't know too many poofy-haired metal chicks or hard rock, whatever you want to call them, that, that were really wanting to hear a song about living underground after a nuclear apocalypse. You know what I mean? It yeah. just didn't have that, you know, it wasn't going to rope their core audience in, which was a lot of women, man. They were they were a good-looking band. That was their whole shtick. 
True, and now they're true. thinking about holes in the wall and living in a, you know, in a bunker, you know, yeah. it's like, how, that's, it just wasn't the same thing, you know, and that's a tough sell, but they, and they were, you know, obviously trying to appeal to the dude contingent and get all these metal guys on board. And I was cool either way. Cause I liked all of that stuff, I, you know, but had I been brought in in an advisory capacity and asked if I thought this was a good idea, I'd be like, no, man, don't, don't write science fiction songs. That's not, <laughs> that's not what the ladies want to hear. Yeah. You know? Well, speaking of, I guess, like not what the ladies want to hear. I think if I had to rank them, Andy Warhol was right. That is my favorite, absolute favorite Warrant song. Yeah, it's creepy as hell, man. Yeah, and that's something I really want to talk to you about because I took to it right away and I love it. But now the more I listen to it, it's kind of a hard, it's kind of a hard listen because... To me, the way I took it at first was, you know, he's talking about the kid with the gun and yeah. how he wants, basically wants to be famous. It sounds like that's almost like stuff that happens in the world right now is you got people well, I always, I don't shooting know other people and stuff. You know, it's like crazy. This is almost like a... I always thought it was about John Lennon, the Martin David. Chapman. Oh, really? And I don't, I don't know that it is, but that in my head, that's yeah. what would spring to mind every time I heard it. And it did the same thing the other day, but you're right, man. I mean... Maybe he was just ahead of the curve on that. Watching you on my TV. Why did God make you so famous when he only spit on me? Either way, there's some deep meaning because people wanting to be famous and being on TV and it's like, I'll take your life, but it's not personal. You know, I just want to be famous. Yeah, so I just, you're just a stepping stone. This is what I got to do to get somebody to, to take a look at me kind of. Yeah, but I mean, it's, that's, that's a heavy duty song, man. That's what I'm saying. The guy had a depth to him that it ain't unskinny bop. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. a whole other thing. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there weren't other writers in that era that were were doing similar work that uh, you know that caliber, but by and large, there weren't that many of them. Yeah. And he stuck. He snuck it by, man. Like I don't even know that people caught half of the things that are in those songs or realized how well crafted some of those lyrics are, just because they're he wrapped them up in these in hooks. You know, it's like you don't realize what you're getting. You know, you just know that it's, you, your ear likes it kind of thing. But yeah. you're not. And that, that may be part of what his issue was with his fame is that not getting the, uh, you know, respect for that. You know, he just got that. It, it's like that part wasn't being there was no light being shown on that. You know? Yeah. Man, look at like like Bitter Pill, like we talked about. That's a great. Let It Rain has a great lyric. Quicksand. Yeah. I mean, and the stuff is really relatable too, man. It's not like it's artsy fartsy over your head kind of stuff. It was really. Now, I will say this: that Hollywood song that sounds just like that shitty Jane's Addiction song that needs to go away forever. Other than that, man, I could all of it. and inside of every every album had to have the you know the double bass song. Yeah, and this this one was no exception. Those songs, I could those could all be shuffled off the deck for me. I'd be fine with it. Yeah, but, or like I guess Bonfire. That's a good song, but it's it's like that's the one sexy kind of girl song. Like, oh, she's hot yeah. like a bonfire. 
Well, they had, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They always had, there were certain things that, like, I don't know how many stupid double bass songs I wrote for my band at the time because you always had to have your double bass intro song. You need a new one every year, so you had to write a different one. But (laughs) they did that on every record. So when you say, was he an influence? Obviously, because we would ape that, the wardrobe, everything. So again, it just, just really underrated, man. Just undervalued as a, as a writer, I think. And he had, I don't know if it exists anymore, but there used to be this website called Laney Jane Music. Huh. Just his name backwards, kind of. And it was a publishing thing where you could go and, you know, cover his songs and stuff. Oh. Just little snippets. It was only like verse, chorus thing. And there were a bunch of things on there no one's ever heard before that, you know, never got released. He wrote a song for Fiona called Life on the Moon. I don't know if you've ever heard that. No. It's on the um, Squeeze I don't even know if it's in print anymore. I'm sure it's not. It might be on uh, Spotify or something. But that song is amazing. Great song. Would have been a great Warrant song, but it was pitched higher for a chick to sing it. So he did get some of that stuff got out there, you know. But for every song we heard on a Warrant record, there were probably 10 other ones that were just as good. I had one last thing to kind of say about the Andy Warhol was right song. Yeah, I, yeah. I had sent you a text the other night and I was like, oh, with the with the mind blown emoji. Because I said I like the song, but I was wondering, I was like, what was Andy Warhol right about? So the other night I'm sitting on the couch and I Googled Andy Warhol quotes. And he's the oh, one that said, yeah. everybody in the future is going to get 15 minutes of fame. And I'm like, yeah. see, it's it's talking about whatever his intention is. It's open up to interpretation for. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he's talking about himself. Like, I know I'm only going to have my 15 minutes of fame because of this, uh, here comes grunge and we're dead. Well, I don't, you know, I, you know, you got to wonder too. I don't know at that point if they were aware how close they were to the finish line of their, yeah. you know, heyday kind of thing. But at some point, I mean, I don't know where that album was recorded at, but you know, back in the day, man, you had A&R people coming in. Yeah. checking on your progress and surely one of them said hey man have you heard this pearl jam album or you know what i mean it, it's that stuff was everywhere man and it was just knowing that the lanes were getting narrower and narrower for your because there was some of that stuff fell into the metal category so it was like almost like allison chains to me when they first came out i thought they were a metal band they were playing on headbangers ball and that's sucking up turf man that's yeah. turf where your video was gonna go you know so they there's no way they weren't somewhat conscious of that from the get-go, these are bands that are on the same label as them. So surely they're like, shit, man, what, what's going on here? This is different. You know, now we don't have to just compete with Motley Crue. We've got these guys coming along. They don't yeah. even shower, and they're selling records. You know what I mean? So Yeah, or you still had Metallica at the time, too, with the Black Album. That was the year before, 90. Yeah. So. Well, but they, they, I always felt like Metallica was one of those things that they, what they did, they were metal, metal. So that was always like, even though they were mainstream at that point, they were like Godfather in or something, man. They just were always going to be there. I don't know if I knew that at the time, but they operated on this fringe that just happened to be a very successful fringe. I never oh, felt okay. like that impeded anything that these guys were doing. Also because they ran neck and neck with like Guns they flew with Guns N' Roses. That stuff got blended together kind of thing. Whereas, I mean, Allison Chains did too. Allison Chains opened for Van Halen. And, you know, those bands... For a very brief moment, were co-mingled, and then yeah. once they're, it's like then it's like they got their assignment. Like it's like they called all the grunge bands in to a big meeting and said, "Look, we're gonna bury these guys. We're gonna, you're the new thing. That's the old thing." 
So don't don't be mingling with them anymore. Don't be <laughs> hanging out with those guys because it's not good for you. And I, that didn't happen, obviously. And I don't think that grunge killed hair metal. Yeah. I think radio programmers and record labels and a lot of really shitty, redundant, unnecessary records yeah. killed hair metal. You know, that was overexposure kind of everything kind of yeah. goes in waves though anyways like it does and it, but i mean it's you know even if you maintain the highest quality people still move on you know what i mean people age yeah. out of what you do they, they they just don't you know i mean if yeah. warrant was jane ray was still alive i would always check out their stuff and if, i would probably buy it if it was good but i'm not the average music consumer you're not the average music consumer. We're diehard people. I like so to think I am, but well, I'm I mean, not, you're definitely, yeah, you're definitely not in the minority. I mean, or you are in the minority rather of people that are yeah. really loyal to bands and stuff. And that's yeah. not everybody, man. People miss whichever way the wind blows for most people, you know. I'm so, also out of that demographic with 18 to 34. Now I'm too old. I'm over the hill for, you know, mask. Yeah, how's it feel, too. man? How's yeah. it feel? <laughs> I do have to thank you, though. Speaking of 15 minutes of fame, thank you for giving me my 15 minutes of fame for the Terra Hate. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> They'll never have us back. No, yeah, that, yeah, I couldn't go. Yeah, I wasn't going to do it, but it was just too easy. And you were right there. And you never know, man. You know, that was the lowest common denominator. I, I swung low on that one. So, yeah. and it went over great. It People did work. It. Yeah. Cause like, uh, we're on the streets. Even... They're still saying that. They're still calling it Terahate now. Yeah. So they have you to thank for it. It's a pate in Terahate. Speaking of that, we were talking about ultraphobic. That's the last one that we have to talk about. Is it your favorite of the four? Man, you know, even going with all the, the Bow Hill uh, buttons and stuff. I would have said, well, Bo Hill did that one too. Mm -hmm. um, I would have said yes, initially. But when I, after listening to these, man, and Cherry Pie is a really great record, but I saw them on that tour and they only played two songs when I saw them. That band, James Kotak was great with them. They were playing a shitty little like outdoor, like beach bar type thing in Springfield, Illinois. And it was really super low rent. And I was kind of shocked that that's where they were playing. But they didn't let it drag them down, man. They came out and killed it. But I don't know. I don't think the record was out then. And I remember they played some of one, which I still don't really necessarily care for that song. And maybe one other song, maybe Family Picnic, because that was going to be the single. Instantly knew that it was just weird. It was just di a totally different band. Yeah. But then when the record came out, before the record came out, I had moved somewhere between that show happening, I, one way there, but I ended up in Nashville. The Nashville Rock Station did one of those anonymous yeah. airplay things where they play a song, they don't tell you who the artist is. Yeah, you told and, me about that. I was going to ask yeah, you. Yeah, like about a like that, it or yeah. spike it kind of thing. Yeah, or a yank it or crank it. Yeah. So Family Picnic got played. And people dug it. Then they told everybody, that's the new song from Warrant kind of thing. I was like, yeah. oh, shit, man. And they, I don't think they ever played it again. So they were doomed from the from the launch of that thing, man. CMC spent some money on all those, because they signed Slaughter and a bunch of other bands, and they really 
kept it going for a couple of years trying to get that stuff back, you know, at, at a budget, obviously, get it back to where it was. And I don't, I mean, I slaughter might have got a little bit of traction and warrant got a little bit of traction, but that record to me is the, they're the only band, and I will say this and stand by it, they're the only band from the quote unquote hairband era that made a pseudo grunge record and nailed it. Janie was a good enough writer and they were a good enough band to get those things to meet in the middle and it worked. If Undertow. Yeah, Undertow. That song is awesome on there. It's That's badass, good. man. Chameleon is badass. Crawl Space. I mean, there's there are duds on it. They got it, man. They made it. It sounded like a, a band updating their sound for the times, but not in a way that was really hokey. Because, again, his lyrics were always good. So he wasn't like Brett Michaels trying to make an Alice in Chains record or something. And his songs were always a little bit dark anyway, like Uncle Tom's Cabin and stuff and Mr. Rainmaker. Yeah. What's another good one? Uh, All My Bridges Are Burning. He already had those kind of lyrics in him and had already displayed that, but it was always in that kind of candy-coated hair metal shell. Yeah. And this stripped down. They did have Bow Hill, so there's still a little bit of a, it's like a lo-fi Bow Hill approach because they were obviously not, they didn't go into a big studio and spend a bunch of money, but he still sprinkled the Bow Hill dust on it and did, because man, listen to Family Picnic in headphones. That guitar shit is, and I don't, I still don't like the chorus of that song, but the verses are fucking badass. That stuff is great. Jerry Dixon, again, plays his ass off on this album. James Kotak is a, was or maybe still is, I don't know, a monster drummer, and he kills it on this, man. His pocket is so deep on this record. And they and they probably did it for almost no money. Shit, Bo Hill was probably the most expensive part of the album-making process, <laughs> just hiring Bo Hill. It should have been bigger than it was. And then, without jumping too far ahead, then Janie almost as a hidden track, drops his best ballad of all time. And it does exactly dick. It does nothing. It gets no airplay. It never releases a single, to my knowledge. It's just, stronger now? Yeah. It's yeah. like, how that was not a hit for somebody, whether it was Warren or, you know, Faith Hill, I don't know, somebody. How did nobody take that song and run with it, man? became your prison to get I decided Trapped inside a gilded cage, tried to set it free, hurts to watch it. It's just so easy. Shit, that ride number two song. It's like Ministry meets Motley or something. <laughs> and Motley Crue's been trying to make that song for the last 20 years since Generation Swine and can't get it right. And Jane <laughs> Lane pulls it off. It just had so much promise, man. And But it just goes to show you at that stage, there was no winning. They could not, it wouldn't matter what they did. They could have recorded Zeppelin 4 and dropped it and no one would have paid a damn bit of attention. It was just, as long as the, you know, warrant name was attached to it, you're cooked. Yeah. Same kind of thing. It's like, what the hell? Yesterday we were favorite sons and now everybody's just pissing on us. You know, it's just the way this system works. But, but man, Ultraphobic, that got all my, hit all my boxes, man. It checked every single one. So, like I said, like with every album, man, there's a couple songs that I would skip over. 
that's just too good to ignore, even though it obviously no one else felt that way because it got ignored by almost everybody. But um, it was just very clearly like influenced by, you know, collective soul or not collective soul, but like those kind of those yeah. bands of time, you know, he was doing this thing. It's like he had his finger on it. You know, he knew what was going on and he could mimic it or, or at least take it and incorporate it into what he was doing. And it not sound, it didn't sound, that's why I never noticed it until now. You know, it wasn't unnatural. It just sounded like Jamie doing Jamie. But it's like, and he's never done that before. That's cool. Like, there's little details. Just And there was, like I said, tons of production things that I had never, either I, I don't remember ever noticing them or I just hadn't picked up on them at all. I think that's why I felt like he seems like more honest than like some of those other singers because he's not always like, uh, like, you know, Scorpions are always like, I don't know, rocking like a hurricane or, you know, yeah. about the girl, always about getting the girl or, you know, banging like the girl or whatever. He's talking well, about other stuff. There's like different it's, stuff. Uh, in some there. singers do this. That's a thing, too. I remember listening to an interview of all people with Richard Marks, and he was talking about when he wrote Right Here Waiting, he pitches it to Barbara Streisand. And she, the reason she didn't want to do it, she loved the song. She's like, I will never be right here waiting for anybody. Like her song, she would want to be, you know, that was, I don't want to be yeah. cast in that role. A lot of singers don't want to be on the receiving end of the shit stick. You know what I mean? They want to be the one, you know, and especially back then, man, when dudes were all yeah. trying to be, you know, broed out and shit. Um, I got an image to uphold here. Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, but then when you'd see a band do it like Motley or something, do one of those slabs of shit like Time for Change where they try and make a socially conscious sign, it's just laughable. I never got that from the Warrant songs, you know. The, to me, the laughable ones were the ones where they were trying to be the macho dude. <laughs> all of his serious songs all resonated with me because they were like, oh, "This is I can relate to that, man. That's a, that's a real thing, you know." But yeah. Vince Neil singing "Change," now it's time for change. That's laughable. You know what I'm saying? Oh. <laughs> that, bands that do that kind of stuff with it's just pandering, you know. Yeah. To me, the Warrant songs that were pandering were those cheese dick party rock songs. Not the serious ones. Yeah. You know? It was the serious ones were the real, to me, were the real Jamie Lane. That rest of us, that's why he had such a case of the ass with Cherry Pie and was kind of like embarrassed by it because he felt like he was kind of stuck being the Cherry Pie guy or whatever. It's like, I would love to cash those checks, but I wouldn't want to be known as the guy that that's my crown jewel is Cherry Pie when I've written some of these other things like, you know, Blind Faith or, dude, I saw Red as a, that's an untouchable power ballad, man. There's not much from that era that can even get in the ballpark of that. Yeah, really. He's the cherry pie guy, you know. <laughs> you know, you can get they can leave a show not having played I Saw Red and there's not gonna be a stampede. If they play a show and don't play Cherry Pie, some shit's gonna get broke. You know what I'm saying? People that that is their song. I, I don't know how I feel about that. I'd probably be conflicted. I mean, until I went to the mailbox and got my check. And then I'd be like, Oh yeah, that's that's cool. It's good, we're good. Some of those bands, it's like a like a what's that like a blessing and a curse. You have all these hits, so you always have to play the hits. But maybe if you don't have as many hits, you can always mix up your set list or you play whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, I mean, you hear the interviews like Def Leppard or Bon Jovi where they say well, we got to play, you know, at least these, you know, their Dirty Dozen or whatever it is they've got to have that because those are all top ten. So, I mean, that's yeah. a fucking great problem to have, man. I, I wish that was a that was a burden that I was forced to live with. At the same time, man, if when you're still making new records and stuff and you want to, how do you squeeze in that stuff that you just labored over that you feel 
especially man because as a songwriter and stuff it's the equivalent of to me at least is like trying to wear your pants from 10 years ago or something like they may not be so comfortable anymore man maybe it's i want to show you my new pants you know i want to wear my new pants they're stretchier you know what i mean you want to be comfortable you want to be doing stuff that feels like you now but when you've got hit singles like that and you got to sing asinine shit like she's my cherry pie i mean granted you wrote it so you know suck it up well, thank you for basically like making me take a deeper look at Warrant because really going by going by the hits, like I missed everything, wrote them off as a different band, you know. Somebody knew what they were doing because those songs were hits, you know. The, yeah. There were always deeper cuts on those records that, you know, yeah, everybody does that. Man, I don't know why that wasn't a single kind of thing. But if you played me Cherry Pie before it came out, I'd be like, man, don't put that out, you know. Not because it's cheesy, just because. Mr. Rainmaker's on there, and Better Roses is on there, and there's umpteen other songs that to me are better songs. Song and Dance Man, that are better songs, but that was the thing, some A&R guy knew that was gonna connect, man, and, it, and sure shit it did. Yeah. So I get, you know, it's like pour some sugar on me. I'm not sure what I would give up to never hear that song again. You know what I mean? When it came out, <laughs> I loved it though. I loved it. Anyway, I, I, I digress. Yeah. Glad that you took the time to delve into them a little bit because there's a lot of great songs on these records. There's some not so great ones too, but that's every band. Well, I trust you because you are my musical sensei. I've said it I hear for, that. for years now. So. I hear that. Well, someday you will surpass me, Padawan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe one day. I will, I will learn from you. But, uh, Actually, you did, I think, because I talked to that dude who's in that band Diamonds, and you kind of said, I never heard of this band. I looked them up or whatever. It is correct. So, you did. You did school me on that one. Yeah, just just once, just once. So. Well, that's, you know, the night is young, man. There's still a chance that you may once again crap out another gem from one of these podcasts that catches me uh, yeah. unaware. That's my mission. <laughs> you know, once once I do that, then I'll stop. <laughs> well, this this one got me a little bit, man. I mean, because I hadn't, like I said, I, I haven't listened to Cherry Pie in its entirety in a long time, and now it's going to be in regular rotation for a while. I think it's weird. My favorite songs are on Dog Eat Dog, but overall the favorite album as a whole would probably be Cherry Pie. I'm telling you, man, I think it's because I have put it in there somewhere in the back of your brain that Bo Hill is all you need, man. That's the missing ingredient on Dog Eat Dog. Sorry, Michael Wagner. I, I, I love Michael Wagner's mixes and his production didn't but, he do some docking stuff? Oh, God, he did docking. He did Skid Row. He did White Lion's Pride, which I, I absolutely love. Actually, he did a couple White Lion records. He's done all kinds of stuff, man. In fact, I, kind of, I think maybe he might have mixed Look What the Cat Dragged In. Maybe oh, like okay. Mix it. And I think he mixed, he did Motley, too. He did some Motley stuff, too, I think. He's done, dude, he's done, his resume is ridiculous. Yeah. He's retired now. Is um, Bo Hill retired? I don't know, man. It's funny. He he actually, in the MySpace days, messaged me one time, and he wanted to remix a former song. Oh, but shit. But he wanted like $1,000. Like and I was like, man, we didn't spend but $1,000 making this whole record. Oh, shit. <laughs> and I couldn't do it. Yeah, he wanted to remix Make It Out. He'd heard it on MySpace and wanted to remix it. And I was like, I would love to hear what that would sound like, but yeah. um, I, I don't have $1,000. So. Oh, you couldn't hit the whole hill that one. I did not have it. Today I would probably do it, but yeah, then I, I wouldn't, I couldn't pull it off. 
So wait, he approached you because he wanted to remix your song, but then he yeah. wanted paid for it. Yes. I thought that seems to be like a weird way to uh, have that. Well, sales pitch. He hey, I'll, hey, I'll do and I'll do this or whatever. It's like usually you approach somebody and then they come now, back with the he, price. He messaged. It was a blind message. I, I don't know even know how he found us. And it was just the things. And I thought, well, first of all, I thought this isn't really Bo Hill. It really was him. I mean, it was flattering because I was a yeah. fan. It's like, but I, I know he did a lot. He did a lot of independent work. I mean, when his, you know, that era kind of fell off. I mean, he, he's still around. I hear him in interviews and stuff. So huh. he still does stuff, you know. I'll have to reach out maybe. But then he might be like, I'll do your podcast for a thousand dollars. I don't I don't know if he still, if he did, would do that. Now I kind of feel I want to kick myself in the ass for not coughing up that thousand dollars. Now that you say it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. That was fun, man. I hope we didn't ramble on about too much bullshit that people already know about Warren, but... I hope I didn't say anything morbid about Jamie Lane either, because I really like that guy. I will tell you one story, and this goes back to around that same Bow Hill thing. During the MySpace days, I worked at Cat's Music, and Jamie Lane started his own, had a MySpace page. Uh At one time, you stop me if I've told you the story before, but one time he posted a picture, and it was of a little computer desk, a little glass computer desk with a, a lap, like a MacBook or something on it and some speakers. And I remember it had a spool of CDRs on it. And it said, this is my, quote unquote, my space, like where he was writing songs. Yeah. The desk was really dusty in the picture. And so I commented on it. I said, looks like somebody needs to dust their space or dust their space kind of thing. <laughs> and he took the picture down. Like he took it down. After. It had like all these other awesome man comments. And I was I like, it's like almost like I was pioneering trolling. <laughs> I went on and said that, and he took the took the fucking picture down the next day. Took it down. Like you were the first internet troll, <laughs> and and I felt so bad. I told my buddy Jason, who's a huge fan that I worked with, and he goes, "Oh man, I bet that really hurt his feelings." And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten. I've always felt bad about like, man, dude, that was a real dick thing to. That's before I even knew what trolling was. Man. I was like, <laughs> A dick thing to say. I was just trying to be funny. Like I was yeah. like, oh, I'm gonna interact with Jane Lane. I fucking love that guy. And yeah. instead, I fucking insulted him. I think that's the thing, though. Is like I always take stuff literal. So if I'm reading a text, I'll take it literal. But that's the good thing about emojis now with text. And I was right. probably before emojis. <laughs> so at least if there's emojis, you could have put like a wing or like you know the tongue sticking out face to well, know it's a joke. But way he- predates the emoji. So, yeah so man yeah i probably did i don't uh i don't even think i put a ha 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 after it or anything i think i just typed exactly what i just said not even and now I, think I, was fucking dick. I mean he was a really nice guy man all right denny well thanks for chatting tonight this was awesome all right uh, man i'm gonna go feed my dog uh, all right thank you for thanks for doing this again and being another guest on a sides dude okay. i want to make sure i maintain the, the record for who's got the most appearances kenny you oh is it me yeah yeah i'm the top oh well shit man yeah all right i'm like an honorary host then yeah yeah definitely man gotta get my uh gotta get my fucking royalty check
All right, man. All right, I dude. will. Uh, I will talk to you soon. All right, man.